It's always a bummer to break up our fellowship time, but we'll get more opportunity at the end uh, of the service to continue chatting with one another. Um, I just want to pray for our uh, our message time this morning. The Lord will um, speak to us. So Lord, we thank you so much that we can we can gather, we can worship you, we can look at you. And Lord, I pray, God, as we look in look at your word, as we um, explore the works of Jesus. God, would you just um, do something in us? Would you allow our eyes to be changed? Would you allow us to see differently? In Jesus' name, amen. So um, I like Sarah knows, I'm probably the least observant person in the world. Uh, maybe not in the world. It's certainly in our family. We'll go somewhere, we'll see something, we'll do something, and she'll be like, did you see that? I'm like, nope, completely missed it. Or we'll be going back to some place, some environment, walk into some home and, and you know, there's something, some decoration or something. And Sarah's like, did you notice that? And I'm like, nope. And then, or a couple months later, I'll be somewhere and then I'll be like, hey, did you know that, did you see that? And she's like, yeah, it's been there forever. So I find myself as not being someone who's always very quickly observant. And I hated those games. Did you guys ever do like, where's Waldo? Uh, I know that's old school, but you know, those things where you, you, you get books and you're trying to find the little character in the book um, or, or those, those things where you, uh, those maps where you like pull it close to your nose and then you go cross-eyed. And when you do that, then you see something. I hate all of those things. They're terribly annoying. I feel like I'm not any good at them. I just don't see that kind of stuff very well. Today, I want to talk about seeing. Uh, the title of my message is I've seen the Lord. And um, it's really meant to be a follow-on from Easter, from Resurrection Sunday, of what we talked about last week, of this idea of Jesus being resurrected, um, this reality of Jesus being resurrected from the dead. And then what happens next? I start playing out those scenarios. Like if you had to write the movie of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection, like what would be the epilogue? Like what would you write next? What would you see Jesus doing next? And how do you think people responded to him? Like, this was the most public thing that was going on in all of Jerusalem. Everything is a buzz. And then he resurrects from the dead. And all of a sudden, you start reading the scripture verses and you can start going, wow, this is probably not how I would have written the epilogue of like, Jesus is what you should do next. Like, hey, you should resurrect from the dead and show up at the temple and make this happen. And you should resurrect from the dead and like go stick it in Pilate's eye. Like, hey, I'm back. You got me to deal with now. Like, you know what I'm saying? We kind of have this movie script of like, okay, I'm back. Now Empire Strikes Back time. It's like, I'm coming for you. Um, and that doesn't happen in the way that we ever think is it would ever happen or the way we would ever write it. In fact, you almost get this sense with Jesus after the resurrection that he's like, I'm done. I'm, I'm, I did it. It is finished. The work has been completed. Like, he's like, like retirement. He's kind of like, hey, I'm done. I'm out of here. And he's talking to, looking at his disciples. He's like, all right, you guys are up next. Next. Who's up next? And there's such a humility in and an interesting in my mind, an interesting aspect of what Jesus does next. What does he do next? I want to 
if you read all of the encounters of the Gospels, each one of them records it differently. Some are really short, like Mark. He just likes to get to a couple of sentences, sum it all up, and be like, okay, we're done. And, and then John takes two chapters, and Matthew has a little bit more. Luke has a lot. There's, and there's different you know, uh, focuses or emphasis in each of the Gospels of what does Jesus do afterwards. But I want to suggest, if you were to read those things, there are three themes that I see that come out of it. One is he focuses on caring for his disciples and his close followers. The second thing he does is he prepares them and talks about, I'm sending you out. And John, he shows up to them and then he says, as I've been sent, now I send you. And the third thing he does is he focuses on the Holy Spirit. And he says, I'm giving you the Holy Spirit. I'm breathing on the Holy Spirit. Wait for the Holy Spirit. And so you kind of get those three themes that are happening. And today, I just want to focus on the very first one. And that was, how did Jesus care for his disciples and his followers after the resurrection? Because it's not like we think. There isn't a parade. There's not a party. None of that stuff happens. In fact, what we, we oftentimes just jump in the Bible in our reading over Jesus resurrected from the dead. Now go into all the world. And we jump to the end of Matthew and say, go into all the world and preach the, the gospel and, and uh, make disciples of all nations. And we kind of just jump to that. But what we miss when we jump to that is we miss what's really going on in the lives of people who experienced this. There are, I'd like to look at today five responses that Jesus's followers have in this time. And we're going to look at Mary's grief, the disciples' fear, the two dudes on the road to Emmaus, their disappointment, skepticism, and failure. Those are, those are five things that you see in the lives of Jesus's followers after the resurrection. And this is where Jesus focuses. It's like, yes, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And yes, the Holy Spirit's going to empower you. To, and the world's going to be changed. And my kingdom's going to come through the Holy Spirit. And it's going to go to every tribe and every tongue. In fact, when Peter preaches on Pentecost, he did something that Jesus never did. They, did, they experienced something Jesus never did. The gospel being spoken in all these different languages and, and thousands of people coming and getting wanting to get baptized. And that didn't happen with Jesus quite that way. So it, it's radical what ends up happening but it's more, it's just as radical what the work is that Jesus does and how he comes alongside his disciples and followers. So Paul records a little bit of this, of what happens after the resurrection. He says this in, in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, I passed on to you what was most important and what had been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. He was buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. He was seen by Peter, then by the 12. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. So Paul's kind of giving, recounting this idea that it wasn't that Jesus just rose from the dead and it was like, well, did it happen? Did it not happen? He's trying to establish this authority. Like, no, Jesus rose from the dead and these were all the people that saw what happened. Jesus' appearance after his resurrection 
was life-changing for the people that he cared for. And it was amazing that these encounters that Jesus had with people were what allowed them to see Jesus. And then, and think about this group of people, these disciples. History records that they saw Jesus and they saw Jesus resurrected and the work that Jesus did in his life. And that example of Jesus's life became their life. The majority of all of Jesus' disciples followed in his footsteps. They're like, we want to die like you did, Jesus. We want to die for the sake of the gospel. This resurrection life thing is the most amazing. So I want us to think about the mindset of Jesus' followers after his death and after his resurrection. Peter is probably thinking about his failures at that point, his betrayal, It says, and it records a lot, that most of the disciples were afraid of retribution. Everything was different. There's this disorientation. There's this shock. There's this trauma. There's this wonder, like, what's really going on? Potentially joyful and terrified at the same time. Everything's different. What happens now? This is like a whole new landscape that we're dealing with. And Jesus comes and he engages in this restore, this restoration process, this meeting of people, this individual caring of each of the disciples. He's like, and, and you see these encounters recorded. Jesus did this, Jesus did this. And it's not the miracles, it's not the feeding of the 5,000, it's not the major teachings, it's not the major healings, it's not the major deliverances. It's this meeting with individual people one-on-one because they needed to be able to see Jesus resurrected. They needed to be able to see Jesus in their own lives. So the first encounter is Mary that I would like to look at in John 20. So John records it this way. Mary was standing outside the tomb. She had run to the tomb. She was crying. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked her. Because they've taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they've put him. Like, on top of him being killed, and on top of this horrible thing happening, I don't even know where he is now. Where did they take him? We keep reading, and it says this. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. So she saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. She's got eyesight like me. Or maybe it's just through the tears, you don't see what's going on. And he says, dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her, who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken him away, tell me where you put him and I will go and get him. Like, this is awful. Like where, you know, trauma upon trauma. Mary, Jesus said. I love that when I read that this week, that, that name jumped off the page at me. He says her name. He says, Mary. She turned to him and cried out, Rabbani, which uh, means is Hebrew for teacher. Like she knew right away when he said her name, that changed everything. And she, it says, he says, don't cling to me. Jesus said, I haven't yet ascended to the father, but go find my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. I love that. 
my father and your father and my God and your God. It says, Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I've seen the Lord. And she gave them his message. Grief sometimes gives us an inability to see. We're blinded by grief. We can't see through grief. This is Mary. She's in this place of grief. And this grief doesn't allow her to see Jesus. But then Jesus speaks her name. It's in the hearing of her name that her eyes are opened. She hears her name. Jesus says, Mary. Jesus says, Maggie. Jesus says, Aaron. Jesus says, Brian. And he calls our name and our eyes are opened. Jesus wants to speak to us directly and not in the abstract. Sometimes we think, we talk about Jesus and we talk about what Jesus did and he was died and he was buried and he was resurrected. Yes, all of those things happened, but Mary needed to hear her name called. Mary needed to know that Jesus was for her and with her and loved her and knew her. I need that. You need that. We need that. In order to see the resurrected Jesus, we need to hear our name called. And we also need to see that in our grief, in our places of grief, in our times of grief, that's one of the ways Jesus wants to meet us. The Lord wants to meet us in our grief that personally. He wants to call our name. In one of the devotionals I was reading about this encounter, the author says this, Mary's encounter with the risen Lord shows us what can happen in our own prayer as we quiet our hearts and listen for his voice. Every day, Jesus asks us to let him enter even the fears and darkness in our hearts, those places that we hide from the rest of the world and heal them with his love. As he speaks our name, we too can say with Mary, I have seen the Lord. Our ability to see the Lord is connected to us hearing him call our name. It's the place where he can bring healing in our grief. The second encounter that Jesus had after he's resurrected with his disciples, and it's not necessarily in linear order, but the second one I want to talk about is fear. It says in John 20, that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. And you see this in other accounts. They're hiding in a room. They're afraid of the Jewish leaders. They're afraid of what's going to happen. Not only um, are they grieving themselves, and in fact, I didn't even read the other passages where it talked about it wasn't just Mary grieving, but it was the disciples who were grieving and weeping. But they were also afraid. They were fearful. And so they're hiding behind these doors, and suddenly Jesus is standing there among them. And he says this, peace be with you, he said. As he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hand and his side. They were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. And again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. The disciples are afraid. 
And Jesus comes in, and what is the thing that he declares? What is the thing that he speaks? He speaks peace. I want to suggest that, that, that for us, for his disciples, where we have places of fear, where we're living in fear, Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, wants to show up and say, peace, peace be with you, peace. See the wounds in my hand? See my side? I've purchased your peace. I've conquered sin and death. I've come that you might have peace. What else are they going to do to me? Like they took their best shot. Rome took their best shot. They crucified me on a cross and shoved me in a cave. And here I am. Peace. Peace be with you. What do you have to be afraid of? As I was sent in the world, so am I sending you. Look at my hands and my side. Enter my peace. The resurrected Jesus, when we see the resurrected Jesus, the Lord wants to replace fear in us with his peace. He wants to come and declare his peace in our lives. That's what he wants to do. That's what he's purchased. That's what he's done. The full resurrected Jesus, he calls your name and he speaks peace and brings peace and establishes peace in our lives. In fear, Jesus becomes our peace. The next story, disappointment or sadness or both. So everybody's got different responses to what's been happening. Mary goes to the tomb and is grieving. The disciples are hiding in the upper room, afraid and grieving. These two dudes are like uh, in, in the fight, flight, or freeze method of things that bad that happened. These guys are like, we're out of here. We're going to go to Emmaus. We're going to walk to another town. Because this, we want to get out of town. And maybe they were afraid too. Like, let's get out of town so they don't know we were with that Jesus guy because it didn't turn out good for him or whatever. And it says in Luke 24, this is what it says. They're walking along to this village of Emmaus. And as they walked along, they're talking about everything that's happened. And Jesus shows up and he asks them, what are you guys discussing so intently as you walk along? So kind of he moseys up. I love this, that Jesus is like, oh, I'm going to go, I'm going to talk with Mary at the tomb. I'm going to pop in over here uh, in the upper room area. And then I'm going to go, go chase these two dudes down that are walking to Emmaus. And he's like, what are you guys talking about? They stop short, sad. The, the author here says sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, oh, I guess there is a name, Cleopas replied, you must have only been born yesterday. No, he says, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened here in the last few days. What things, Jesus said. It's just like goading them along. The things that happened to Jesus from the man, uh, the man from Nazareth, they said, he was a prophet who did powerful miracles and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. We had hoped... He was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. We had hoped. This is, we had hopes. We had expectations. We had desires. And now, yeah, we're sad and we're disappointed. This didn't go down the way it was supposed to go down. What do we do with this? The, if you keep reading there in the passage, 
They even say, oh, and so, and we heard that Mary went to the temple and or, uh, to the tomb and Jesus was arisen and some of the disciples went and he wasn't there. And it's like, but we didn't believe him. They're like, yeah, not sure this really happened. Ex- Jesus didn't meet their expectations. And they were crushed. They were disappointed. They were sad. And then it says this, they kept walking along. They kept walking along and Jesus starts talking to them. And at one point he calls them foolish people. It's not like very compassionate sometimes. I would think this would be a moment for like empathetic listening. Like, tell me, how does that make you feel? And he's like, you dudes are, you guys are, you're not remembering some stuff. Let me help you here. And he says this, wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer these things before entering his glory? And it says this, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures, this things concerning himself. And I love this. I love that Jesus takes time in our disappointment and our sadness and our running away. And he goes, let me explain some things to you. Let me explain some things to you. Sometimes we need teaching and instruction. Sometimes we need Jesus to explain some stuff to us. And he wants to. He wants to. He wants to lay these things out. He wants to bring revelation. He wants to bring clarity. But they still aren't quite getting it. But he's explaining it. And they keep walking along and they end up in the village of Emmaus. And it says this in verse 30, as they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Here it is again. They can't see. They're not seeing. They're, they're unable to see because of this disappointment, this sadness. They can't see the reality of who Jesus is until they start eating with him. And their eyes are opened. These are the things that Jesus did after he resurrected from the dead. He didn't go and do the famous things and didn't go and do the big things. He's like, I need to eat some bread with these guys. I need to explain to them the truth and the reality of, remember what the scripture said? Remember what I said? Remember what was going to happen? Let me bring you along. Let me love you by teaching you and instructing you. And I might call you a fool sometimes. And I might challenge you that you're in unbelief and not thinking about things, but I'm going to sit down and I'm going to have a meal with you. In our disappointment, hope deferred, sadness, Jesus teaches us and he eats with us. And I don't know why he did it in that order, but whatever, he could have eaten with them and taught with them at the same time. It doesn't matter, but he comes close So I, I thought I would be vulnerable today and share um, something from my journal. If you see this laying around, don't read it. Um, but three and a half years ago, I was going through some challenging, I don't know, it was a hard time. And so I was like, well, I should write a poem about my hard time. Isn't that what you do when you're going through hard times? Like, let's just write a poem. It's a really bad, it's bad poetry but I'm going to read it to you. I'm going to be vulnerable with you. Uh, so don't laugh. 
And, and Sarah would be like, sometimes Sarah's like, Hey, when you're sad, tell me what's going on in your life or when, when it's hard. And then I tell her and she's like, Oh, don't, that's too hard. <laughs> she's like, <laughs> she's like, Whoa, you went way too dark. I was like, you asked. So you guys are like, we didn't, I know you didn't ask for this. So, so here's, here's my, here's my poem. Time moves slowly, but relentlessly removing pieces of life that connected. The picture is fragmented. The holes are pain, grief. Anchors have been raised. Drifting is the new orientation. Strength expended on balance, exhausted in pretending that land is ahead, dull, floating, waiting, Unsure if I need wind or paddle. Storylines are lost on Gideon's grapes. 40 years of wandering. Will I find Canaan or die in my same shoes? Did I lose the trail? Was there a map? Waiting for Isaac is cruel. Why did you stop writing? Does glory always fade? The picture is ruined, the journey's adrift, the story is lost. Amen. You like that? <laughs> That's my poetry. Very depressing, I know. But that's, that, that's got, I wonder if that's how these guys felt. The picture's ruined, the journey's adrift, the story is lost. Like, we had a great thing going with you, Jesus, and now it's, you, it's all been blown up. What are you doing? What are you doing? And he's resurrected, and we can't see it. They can't see him. They can't see what he's doing. They can't see what's going on. And he comes and he touches each one of them in their place of grief, in their place of disappointment, in their place of fear, and he does something in them. So now the skeptic, there's Thomas. You guys remember Thomas? I'll call him the skeptic. So after all of these amazing things are happening, Jesus pops into the room and is like, hey, peace be with you, I'm here. I'm like, whoa, Thomas wasn't there. So we hear secondhand, and it says this in John 20, 24, one of the 12 disciples, Thomas, nicknamed the twin, um, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, we have seen the Lord. But he replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands, put my fingers into them and place my hand in the wound in his side. He's like, good for you. Good that you saw him. I'm not buying it until I see him. So it says this, eight days later, the disciples were together again. And this time Thomas was with them. The doors were locked, but suddenly as before, Jesus was standing among them. Here he is, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, he says it directly to Thomas, put your fingers here. Look at my hands, put your hand in, uh, in the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer, believe. My Lord and my God, Thomas explains. Then Jesus told him, you believe because you've seen me. Blessed are those who believe without seeing me. Still, even in Thomas's place, 
It's okay to be a skeptic. Jesus is still going to show up. He shows up. He shows up and says, see, I'm here. Touch me. Touch my hands. Touch my wounds. To the skeptic, Jesus is offering you his wounds. And he's saying, and he's saying, yeah, you don't have to get this second hand. You don't have to believe second hand. And he's not the only one. Thomas represents, there's other passages in Matthew. It says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some of them doubted. And in Mark, he records this, um, that Jesus rebuked their stubborn unbelief because they refused to believe those who had seen him. So secondhand accounts were starting to circulate and people are like, oh, I'm not going to believe it. So this Thomas wasn't the only skeptic at the time. <laughs> and that's okay. Jesus invites him and he meets Thomas where he's at and challenge, but he challenges him. He meets him where he's at and says, I'll show you. I'll show you myself. Touch me. He's challenging also in Thomas this ability to believe based on the testimony of others. But in our skepticism, Jesus invites us to personally touch his wounds. For all of us, for the skeptic in me, for the skeptic in you, we spend a lot of times listening to other people. And at the invitation from Jesus is like, Come to me and touch my wounds. Look at my wounds. Look at my side. You don't need to listen to all the secondhand accounts I'm offering you. Come close. Examine for yourself. Jesus invites us to personally touch his wounds. The last one is failure. So we had the skeptic in Thomas. We had the failure in Peter. And Peter wasn't the only one. Um, it says, Jesus prophesied, he said, if you scatter the shepherd, the sh if, you, if you take out the shepherd, the, ske the, the sheep are going to scatter. And so that's what happened. They end up back in their old hometown. I mean, what do you do next? Peter's like, man, even if Jesus rose from the dead, um, he probably knows um, I denied him. Um, I wasn't counted with him. I, so they decide in John 21 to go fishing. That's what it says. They're like, let's go fishing. And if you remember with Peter, um, that was his original occupation. It was like, I'm just going to go back to what I did before because everything's changed. There's a new landscape. What am I going to do? I'm going to go fishing. And it's, a, and it's an amazing story of what we see in Peter's life. And there's several disciples that go with him. And John records it. This is the third time that he appears to his disciples. So what does he do? He shows up to this group of people that have failed. They've lost, you know, they, they probably wrote a poem like mine. The story's adrift. All is lost. Let's go fishing. They've failed miserably. And Jesus shows up and he starts a fight and they go out and they're fishing. And Jesus is like, well, I'm going to start a fire and make breakfast. And they're out fishing. And then he's like, hey, why don't you guys like throw the nets on that side of the boat on the right side, you'll catch a lot of fish. And they do, they catch this massive amount of fish. I like to think that Jesus props, prospers us even in our meaningless endeavors. He's like, he blesses them in the midst of running away. 
we want to punish, don't we? It's like, oh, you ran away. You screwed up. You're a failure. You know, come back remorseful. And he's like, why don't you guys like take in a boatload of fish? I'm going to help you be extremely successful right now. And Peter sees, he's like, that's Jesus. I'm going to run for the shore. I'm going to go talk with him. And it's recorded this way. In verse 12, Jesus says to this, as they come back to the shore, now come and have some breakfast. This is Jesus who like healed and taught and did all these amazing miracles. And he's like, I've made you breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Then Jesus served them the bread and fish. This was the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples since he'd been raised from the dead. I love this. I love that how personal Jesus is. What is he doing? He's coming and loving his disciples who ran away, who feel like failures, who need restoration, who need to see Jesus again. So then he talks specifically to Simon Peter. After breakfast, it's nice. He got him. He wasn't hangry anymore. Talk to me after I've eaten, not before I've eaten. Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Kind of a personal question in front of six or seven people. Yes, Lord, Peter replied, you know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said, you know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time, Jesus asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked him the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. What an amazing encounter that Jesus chases these guys down and says, man, I want to restore you. I want you to know in this, this back and forth about, do you love me? He knows, I know, I know you love me. And I know you failed. I know you love me and I know you failed. And he says, and I, and I still have this calling on your life. I still have this purpose on this life. I, you still have this destiny in your life to feed my sheep and feed my lambs. Jesus' appearance to his disciples after his resurrection focuses on all the experiences that we all face and how we see and believe and follow Jesus. We can have trouble seeing Jesus just like Mary did because of our grief. We can have trouble seeing Jesus because of our fear. We can have trouble seeing Jesus because of our disappointment and our skepticism and our failure. And I love this. Jesus spoke Mary's name. To the disciples, Jesus spoke peace. To the two on the road, he taught and ate with them. To the skeptic, he let them touch his wounds. And to Peter, who failed, he restored him. This was the work of Jesus, the amazing resurrected Jesus. This is what he thought was the most important thing to do after he was resurrected, to go meet with these individual people. And that's the story of our gospel today. This is the most important stuff that Jesus wants to do. He wants in all of our lives 
There's not a time in our lives where we don't walk through one of these things. And Jesus says, I want you to see me resurrected. I want you to have a revelation of me. I want you to know me. I want you to love me. And, and what, what happened with these followers of Jesus is they're like, you know, I'm, we don't have a cause anymore. We don't have um, this big mission that we're on. We have a revelation of the love of Jesus in our lives and that we're willing to die for. That we're willing to spend our lives on. That we're willing to go after. That revelation of Jesus is what we have that the Lord wants to give to each one of us. He wants to give us an individual revelation of who he is. That we will say, I will take up my cross and follow you, Jesus, anywhere. Anywhere. That's who you are. You are who I want to follow. And yes, we're going to go and make disciples and many are going to believe and follow. But who is it? What is it that we want to raise up? What is it that we want to elevate? Paul said, I, I want to know the power of the resurrection. Everything else is, is a loss. Everything else is rubbish. It's like, I want to know power of the resurrection and the fellowship of suffering. And I want to be like Jesus because I've experienced Jesus. And Jesus has done something in my life that no one else can do. The Lord wants to give us eyes to see. It's amazing to me that much of the revelation that Jesus brought during this time was over a meal. He ate. He ate with them. And at times like Mary, Mary's alone, and Jesus comes and says her name and says, Mary. And man, I want to encourage us, the Lord, in your loneliness and in your grief, the Lord's going to come and he wants to speak your name to you. The Lord wants to do that. He says your name. He knows your name. In some areas, the Lord wants you to share a meal because we are the body of Jesus. We are the people of Jesus. How can we, in one another's lives, speak peace? How in one another's lives can we elevate this resurrected Jesus, this Jesus who's done it all? How can we speak peace into the lives of one another? How can we teach and instruct one another? Sometimes over a meal, we've got to learn that we're a fool, right? I feel like I've had a lot of people in my life who've helped me see the resurrected Jesus because I've had a meal with them and I've left that meal and I'm like, I see Jesus. I see the resurrected Jesus because I've had a meal with people who've walked with him and they've explained the scriptures to me and they've helped me see more clearly. Jesus wants to teach and instruct and he uses one another. He uses us to help us see Jesus. We can be Together, we can bring, like Thomas, we can bring the wounds. We can bring the wounds of Jesus and we say, be healed. 
We can bring healing into places of skepticism as we're together. And we can, we can see restoration happen in our lives as we're with one another. So as I close today, my prayer is two things for us. One is that we will see Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, and see Jesus as someone who wants to do all of these things for us. He's after us. He, there's a pursuit. Jesus had to pursue each one of these people. He pursued them and said, I want you to see me, see me resurrected for you, resurrected for you. And the second thing is that this is the type of fellowship that Jesus has called us to with one another. As we eat together, as we walk together, as we cook, as we camp together and make, you know, cook on the side of, cook breakfast out on a rock together, we have this revelation of Jesus. And the Lord wants us to be the hands and feet of Jesus to the failure, to the skeptic, to the disappointed, to the fearful, and to the grieving. And it's not something we have to work at. It's just something that we can say, I've seen Jesus. You, and, and let me tell you what Jesus did for me. He met me. He met me on the side of a lake. He met me on the side of a road. He met me at the side of a tomb. And I'm never the same again. Amen. Will you pray with me? Jesus, we want to see you again. In your full resurrected self. And nothing, you've conquered it all. You've purchased it all. You've done it all. You've loved completely. You've loved without limits. Would you call our names? Would you speak your peace? Would you teach us? Would you touch us? Would you restore us? Jesus, we want to see you in every way. I pray for myself. I pray for each person in this room that we would see the resurrected Jesus and we would know your love for us. That we'd never be the same. Our lives are not about performance and religion and doing. They're about being captivated by the resurrected Jesus. We love you today, Lord. Thank you for loving us so well. In Jesus' name, amen.